to hear the hope that they had of, of being released and being able to go back and get a job and take care of their family and then talk with them after they've been out for a few weeks and just hear how devastated they were, how the hope had been lost even within just a few weeks of being released because they kept over and over and over again were declined a job. And we're not talking, they're not going to get a nice corporate job in Silicon Valley. They're looking you know, to work at, at a local retail establishment or restaurant or somewhere like that. And just over and over again, facing that rejection and thinking about how that really fuels the recidivism rate, which pulls down our public safety level. That is Jeremiah Mosteller. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is criminal justice reform. Specifically, we're going to be talking with Jeremiah Mosteller about second chance hiring. This podcast was recorded on May 6th, 2021, and I hope that you learned as much in this podcast as I did. Jeremiah is a passionate advocate for second chance hiring, and I very much enjoyed recording this podcast with him. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. So, Jeremiah, I'm looking through the headlines uh, that I get every day and every afternoon, every morning, and I see one from the Washington Examiner that says second chance hiring is a win-win for employers and the community. And I would think it'd be a win, you know, for the person being hired also. There's a question, though, that I I get regarding this, and that is, why do we even care? Why, why are we engaging on something like this? And it's not like we're working on the margins on it. It's not like we're out there, you know, it's just something that we dabble in every once in a while. This has been a consistent big push from the community that businesses should be hiring ex-cons and I got to ask, why? Why is this so important to us? Uh, to start for listeners today, so they can understand the scope of the problem, is that we know that 95% of people who enter our prison and are currently in our prisons, they're going to be released back to our community. So every year, that looks like about 600,000 individuals released from state and federal prisons, and many millions more who are exiting our local jails are coming back to our communities and they're trying to restart their life again. The best estimate we have is that about 78 million Americans have a criminal record. So with touching that many people every single year and that many people in total, it's vital that these people have an opportunity for a true second chance at becoming a productive citizen. Did you say did you say 78 or 7 to 8? 78 million Americans have a criminal record. Out of about 350 million Americans. Yep. And that's according to the FBI's fingerprint. That's staggering. I had no idea. Yes. Yep. Wow. Okay. So we're getting, I mean, I'm no math genius, but you're getting dangerously close to like almost one out of three Americans having a, a criminal record. Not quite there, but it's close. Yeah. It's, it's almost one in four. 
it's almost one in four. Is that what you said? Yes, almost one in four. So when a person comes out, we, we've talked about this before on other podcasts. When a person comes out of prison, they may have they may have taken classes in prison that allow them to learn how to cut hair. But then when they get out, they find that the state has some sort of barrier in place saying that you can't get a barber's license if you've got a criminal record. Are there still ridiculous barriers like that in place keeping people from starting their own businesses or joining a business being hired? Yeah, Dwayne, I know we talk a lot about legal barriers because you and I both uh, work at AFP and American Prosperity Foundation. And so we're focused on the institution of government. So in that space, there are about 30,000 laws that currently impact someone with a criminal record's ability to secure employment. All of those, some of those are very reasonable, like preventing someone who previously committed financial fraud from working in a bank. Uh, but there are others that are just blanket prohibitions on anyone with a criminal record from working in certain industries. And so those, those are not as reasonable because there's not as close of a connection between someone's criminal record and their occupation. But I do want to make sure since we're talking about second chance hiring that the laws themselves are not the only thing that is holding people back. The institutions of business and community also play a role in second chances. And we know that societal stigma is just as significant of a barrier to second chances for those with a criminal record as these many legal barriers are. Um, it's both reasonably and practically necessary for businesses to run background checks. But the mere existence of an arrest or a conviction on the background check by itself doesn't necessarily provide a full picture of a person's history and whether that person is restored and is a good culture fit for the organization. And so the stigma itself is a big barrier if people just say, oh, they checked the box on criminal record, we're going to throw that resume away. Because you're not actually looking at the holistic nature of a person. And this harms families, it harms communities, it harms public safety, and it harms our economy. And we'd love to dig into that a little bit more. But I think it's as important for all of us that we're willing to provide second chances. Yeah, you're talking about the difference between internal barriers, external barriers. Of course, external barriers are are obstacles that a person has to overcome that someone else has put in their way. Internal barriers are those obstacles that are personal to each uh, individual. And it's difficult sometimes for a person to overcome those external or those internal barriers. External barriers, too. But internal barriers specific to the individual, I can't, I can't change those barriers for you. Like I can get, I can help get an occupational license out of the way, but I can't make you change your mind. All I can do is talk to you and maybe educate you on some different things and help you expand your perspectives. And then eventually you'll remove those internal barriers and you'll open yourself up to those opportunities too. And I'm just looking at some of the statistics Former inmates, and you said there's 78 million former inmates in the United States, face a 27% unemployment rate. 27% of them. And there's 650,000 people released from prison every year. And only 55% of those people report any kinds of earnings within the first year. So you've got 650,000 people. Only a little more than half of them are going to make any money that first year. That has got to be an incredible obstacle for them to overcome. 
I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine getting out, not wanting to go back. I don't know that there's a whole lot of people who leave prison and are like, okay, how can I get back there as quickly as possible? That was awesome. It was just what I wanted. Most people, I would assume, get out and they want to not go back. But then if you have to spend a year without any kind of income, I mean, those are, those are desperate times. Is that what we're seeing is, is motivating most people to uh, reoffend, to go back into the life of crime? Yeah, Dwayne, you, you bring up a very important point. And that impact on someone's employment does not stop after year one. We see that that impact on employment continues for the rest of their lives. We know from a recent report released last year that someone's average annual earnings over their lifetime will go down 52% if they have previously been incarcerated. And even a low-level misdemeanor will increase their average annual earnings by 16% over the extent of their life. And so for each individual person, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is for them individually in their lives. And for our economy, that is $372 billion in lost earnings each year. This is a massive amount of money that we're losing for our economy and that these individuals are facing that they just can't take care of their families. And we know that this is one of the biggest factors why we see 45% of people being rearrested to exit our federal prisons and 77% of people exiting our state prisons being rearrested within just three years. And so we see that we're not actually helping people get back on their feet. We're not helping them move forward with their lives and become productive citizens again because of the legal barriers and the societal barriers that we're facing. And it's it's difficult. I, I can understand people. I, I can understand how people would say, well, you know, I don't care. They, they're ex-cons or criminals, whatever. I, I can hear people saying that. I can also hope they would recognize we don't want them to reoffend, though. I mean, they've done this once. They've hurt people once before. Why make it why make it more difficult for them to lead a better life? And why incentivize, essentially, a life of crime? Why incentivize breaking in the law and hurting someone else again when you, you don't have to? And that leads me to another question, which is what's in it for the business? I mean, we, we keep seeing this push to hire ex-cons, hire ex-cons, hire ex-cons. Why? What's in it? You know, if I'm a business owner and I've got a list of, uh, you know, applications here and I see one that says former ex-con, why should I say, well, I'll, I'll take a look at this one. What's in it for me? Yeah, Duane, that's a good question. I hear from people all the time. You know, that's great. I want to help the community. I want to improve public safety. I'm glad that I'm glad that these people are willing to step out and do that as a business leader. But many businesses will not act unless it's good for their bottom line. We know that. And that's the role of business. Business is supposed to create profits and business leaders are supposed to create profits. And so that's always their question. Well, the good news is that this is also good for their bottom line. Uh, it used to be that I would speak with business leaders and they would provide anecdotes. Uh, the individuals that they had provided a second chance were the hardest working, most committed employees. Um, and I would always get feedback from other business leaders. Well, that's great. Those are anecdotes. And so the good thing is, is that over the past few years, we actually have some new data and some innovative research that actually prove what these business owners that have for decades been providing second chances say. We know that and now know that employees with a criminal record will on average stay with their employer 10% longer than those without a criminal record. 
And for employers, with it costing somewhere around $4,100 on average to recruit someone and taking about 42 days to find a new employee to fill that gap when someone leaves, this 10% difference will save employers both significant time and money. It shows that they can save a lot of money by hiring someone with a criminal record because they're going to stay on longer, they're more committed, and their turnover rate is so much lower. And then on kind of the second point of well, maybe they're not as good of employees. We actually know from research that the Charles Koch Institute did whenever I was there in partnership with the Society for Human Resources Management, that 82% of managers feel that the quality of hire for for workers with a criminal record is as high or higher than workers without a criminal record. So we now have proof to show that not only these employees will stay with you longer and they're more committed, but also that they are just as good employees or even better employees than people without a criminal record. So it's not only good for our communities, it's, it's also good for the bottom line of a business. And so that's why we advocate whenever we talk to businesses, we say, hey, do an individualized assessment. We're not saying you must hire a candidate who has a criminal record over one who doesn't. We're just saying the business should give them an interview talk to them, see if they're a culture fit, and then make the decision from there. Don't just throw away their resume because they checked a box on the application. There's another study I'm looking at here from Northwestern, and it shows similar things to what you were talking about, where you have employers find that second chance hires are more grateful, they're more loyal, they're more willing to go that extra mile, they stay on their jobs longer. This is a different study than the one from the Charles Koch Institute, I believe. But it shows very similar things. And so there is there is an idea, an aspect of mutual benefit because mm-hmm. the, the hire obviously has a job, has some income. They have a way to, to maintain a standard of living. And, but the employer also gets a good employee that will stick around and will be more helpful and more appreciative. What's I want to ask you this, though. Let's say I'm also looking at the fact that the situation as it is, people aren't getting hired. Like we said, 55% won't have an income the first year. Some might say, well, just start your own business then. What's What do you say to someone who says, so what if they can't get hired? They should just start their own business. Yeah, and a lot of them have. And we have partners like the Prison Entrepreneurship Project and, and lots of other catalyst organizations to the Sandy Gather Foundation that are helping people do that. But back to those legal barriers, Out of those 30,000 laws, there are a significant number of them that actually relate to business licenses and to occupational licensing that bar people with a criminal record from accessing certain occupations, as well as in certain communities actually starting a business. So they can't actually even secure a license to start any business in that local community because of their criminal record. So it's not in some of those communities, it's not just a, a factor of what occupation, it's a factor of any occupation, they cannot start a business. And then if they are not in one of those communities, There are a lot of occupations they're barred from because the occupational licensing boards have what we call good moral character or moral turpitude provisions, which means that the current market participants, whether it be plumbing or welding, can actually decide that you're not allowed to enter the market because they make up the board. And so they want these very broad terms so they can say, oh, any criminal records are you're not allowed in this market. And so what we've actually been working on with Institute for Justice and a lot of other partners is to say, Let's actually talk about what occupations are directly related to certain crimes. And so kind of back to what I said earlier, financial fraud, having someone that committed financial fraud, not working in a bank makes sense. And those laws should exist. But 
not everyone with a criminal record should be barred from working at a bank. Why are you so passionate about this issue? That's when we talked about this, doing this podcast, you were really excited about this. And I'm just curious, why are you so passionate about this? Yeah, so I think it it stems from the times that I've been able to talk with people when I was at prison fellowship before my time uh, at the Koch Institute who were in prison and were kind of on their way out. And to hear the hope that they had of, of being released and being able to go back and get a job and take care of their family and then talk with them after they've been out for a few weeks and just hear how devastated they were, how the hope had been lost even within just a few weeks of being released because they kept over and over and over again, were declined a job. And we're not talking, they're not going to get a nice corporate job in Silicon Valley. They're looking you know, to work at, at a local retail establishment or restaurant or somewhere like that. And just over and over again, facing that rejection and thinking about how that really fuels the recidivism rate, which pulls down our public safety level. And so as my brain just started connecting all of those thoughts and thinking, this isn't good for these individuals and my heart breaks for them because I want them to be able to get back on their feet because I heard them tell their story and talk about how they were restored. And now people won't even give them the time of day to explain that story. They won't look beyond one simple factor to let them explain who they are. And it goes back to what I believe you and I talked about sometimes my many opportunities. Every time I get to go visit a prison, I realize that all it would have taken is one mistake for me to be where they are one wrong mistake and I would be in the, in their situation. And so I'm really no different than them. And so it's really just having that empathy and kind of putting myself in their shoes of, I have succeeded and I've been able to achieve some success, but they just have constant barriers that keep them from achieving that success. And the barriers we, we talked about earlier, those internal barriers, mm-hmm. we see people who can't get these jobs and we see that they're ex-cons and very often our minds go to, well, they just don't want a job or they're lazy or that's why they went to prison the first time. And we, we don't see what's keeping them from achieving the life that they want. And that's a powerful testimony you shared. Thank you for, for telling me that. A few years ago, I was in my home state of Missouri and I'm reading the headlines from the state capitol and there was a state senator who wanted to pass ban the box legislation. And I had no idea what that meant. I'm like, what is, what is this? I knew the, the state Senator, I was skeptical of any legislation they put forward and I could not comprehend what, what she was trying to do. It looked like she wanted to force businesses or prohibit businesses from asking whether someone was an ex-con. There's a difference between saying the state won't ask this question and private businesses cannot ask this question. So I was wondering, could you explain ban the box to me so I understand it better and then help me understand, is this something we are saying private businesses should be prohibited from doing or is this something we're saying private businesses shouldn't do this, but we're not going to force them? So, yes, there are essentially kind of three different policies that people are talking about when they use the term ban the box. So the first is kind of what this conversation has been focused on, which is where a business voluntarily chooses to remove the criminal record question from their employment application. This does not mean that they never inquire or they don't do a background check. They just allow the person to apply and come in for an interview 
And then they later do a background check after the person has completed the interview or after they have decided to make a job offer before that offer is formally given. So when we're talking about government policies, there's two forms that, that governments have tried to adopt this type of model and try and um, use policy as a way to encourage businesses to do this. The first is going to be uh, when governments choose to, to ban the box on its own agencies. When they say all government jobs, we're going to ban the box on those applications. And government says we're going to lead by example. And so we want private business to follow us, but we're going to take the first step and show them this is safe to do. So either the governor issues an executive order or the legislature passes a law saying all government jobs, we're going to move that criminal record question to later in the process. But the, the kind that you're talking about, the, the kind that this legislature legislator introduced is actually an, another step beyond that. So not only is the government going to say we're not going to do this, we're going to lead by example, but they're actually saying no businesses, you have to do this. We're going to force you to not ask about the criminal record. And about seven to 10 years ago, uh, almost everyone that worked in the criminal justice reform space, uh, including organizations that I've worked at, supported this as a solution to advance second chances. But over that time period, we've had some research come out that has raised some serious concerns about government imposing this type of mandate on private employers. We now know from this body of research that these laws actually cause a lot more harm than the good that they present. We see that in certain communities and even on national studies that these laws have actually resulted in less employment of people with a criminal record, more discrimination against certain minority and low income groups, and actually resulted in more crime among the actual individuals they're trying to help. So essentially, this research is showing that we're not improving employment among these individuals, especially minorities or individuals with a low level of education. And employers want to know this information. So what are they doing? So to achieve the same outcome, they are actually going to engage in some form of conscious or subconscious discrimination in their hiring practices. These employers are assuming, well, these particular ages and these particular demographic characteristics are more likely to have been involved in the criminal justice system. So since I can't ask if they were, I'm just going to assume that these groups of people actually have a criminal record. And so I'm going to skew towards groups that are not part of that group. Um, it's worth noting that this research does not show that in the public sector or laws applying to government agencies that the same outcomes occur. So we now see some research showing that government imposed on itself uh, ban the box policies are effective and that they are resulting in higher levels of employment. And so it's great. We, we want government to lead by example. But there are a lot of other policy solutions that we can adopt that don't have this negative outcome of actually working counter to the outcome that we want to achieve by imposing a mandate on private employers. Is there anything about this that we haven't touched on yet that you wanted to let everyone know about? So I would say uh, if you're an employer and you're listening today or you're a manager in an employer and you want to learn more about this, I would say do your research. Don't just take what I'm saying today on its face value. Um, Stand Together just launched a new initiative called the Second Chance Business Coalition with employers as diverse as AT&T, Best Buy, CVS, General Motors, JP Morgan, Microsoft, and, and many more that I can't list here. Uh, the website for this initiative, secondchancebusinesscoalition.org, has way more resources than I could have talked about today about why businesses should consider second chance hiring. I think second 
If you're a business leader, learn how to effectively engage in second chance hiring if this is something that you're interested in. If you are interested in the how, not just the why, uh, check out gettingtalentbacktowork.org. This is a partnership between the Society for Human Resources Management and Stand Together that provides toolkits, information, training, certifications to help employers actually do this. And they touch on everything from talent acquisition to talent development. And so make sure you check that out. And, and last but not least, I would say, if you still are kind of confused after looking at those things, well, where do I go? Partner with someone in your local community to help. Every local community has a nonprofit that is helping people returning from prison or with a criminal record to find employment. They're gonna be your best source of talent in your community. Many of these organizations have a long history of successfully placing talent. And so I would say do some Google searches or go to standtogetherfoundation.org and look at our Catalyst partners if those exist in your communities. They're going to really be willing to come beside you and help you do this successfully. Thanks again to Jeremiah Mosteller for taking the time to talk with us today about second chance hiring. If you have any questions about this or any of the other priority initiatives we've talked about on the top priority, please send me an email at toppriority at afphq.org. Until next time, take care and we'll see you then.